0: Hello and welcome to this special Armistice Day episode of Epochs uh, where we shall be talking about World War I and I'm joined by the brilliant Mr Godfrey Bloom. How are you sir? I'm oh, very well and thank you very much for inviting me. No, no, it's an honour and a pleasure to have a conversation with you. It really is. And so today we're going to be talking about your thoughts and feelings on the run-up to World War I and perhaps whether Britain should ever have got involved in the first place.
1: Well, I, I think it would be good if I just started uh, uh, rewind, as it were, right back uh, to the beginning. So we, we, you, when I get to my bit, my hypothesis, we've got some background to go on. Sure, please do. Um, and that is the, the, the British view has always been to maintain the balance of power. Of course, in in Europe, that was the, in my in my view, totally flawed uh, view of of maintaining the balance because that's a very difficult thing to do, and it's a very expensive thing to do. And so you go back to the war, if you will, of the Spanish uh, succession, you 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 know, you know, go back there, you go right yeah, back right, to there. Like the 18th century. Yeah, so you can go back okay. to the battles of Blenheim and Malplaquet and all that kind of thing and, and uh, John Churchill. You can go right back there, which we fought, but we didn't fight it right the way through because all we wanted to do was clip the Sun King's wings. And so moving on from there, which we did quite effectively, uh, and then we moved on there, but we didn't Back that up because we didn't want it to swing the other way. We were quite happy with a sort of Mexican standoff, as it were. Mm, mm. Uh, and then you go forward to the Napoleonic Wars, uh, and that was another thing which was uh, was really to maintain the balance of power in Europe, which is something that the Whigs, of course, weren't in, in keen on. They didn't think we needed to do that. Uh, it was expensive uh, and costly in terms of lives, so on and so forth. And of course, we go all the way through that. Now, in eighteen sixteen. When we got to the, uh, to the end of that, the, the Napoleonic Wars, full stop, Battle of Waterloo after that, uh, we then had a situation where we decided that th- pursuing that particular idea of balance of power uh, was not necessarily a good thing or almost undoable. So you've got your situation from 1816, with the exception of the Crimean War and colonial wars, We got right through to 1914 without a major war or participating the British in a major war in Europe. Uh, Now we got involved in the Crimean War because you might argue that there was an implication for our empire and the Indian subcontinent and so on and so forth, and warm water ports and all this, but that's not, that's neither here nor there. I just make mention of that. So some doesn't pop up and say, no, you're (laughs) wrong. We fought the Crimean War. We had no interest in the Austro-Prussian War. We had no interest in the Franco-Prussian War. We had no interest in the Prussian War uh, against uh, um, uh, Denmark for Schleswig-Holstein and all this kind of very complicated Russian, uh, uh, complicated uh, European things. Uh, And of course, it seems to me as an historian uh, that the war is a European thing. Europe as a continent is not happy unless somebody's having a war with somebody, you know, and, (laughs) and it's gone on and it's gone on and it's gone. It is totally limitless, it seems to me. And so I come from, the, the, if you will, the strategy that um, we, we are much better keeping out of that because I've never seen any good come of our involvement with military alliances or military situations in, in Europe, one way or the other. It never seems to, when you actually count the cost mm-hmm. and count what happened, mm-hmm. where, where we went with that, what was the point of that? Uh, and so uh, I think that staying out of European conflict is a particularly good thing. I don't like alliances, uh, and so that brings us forward to a particularly stupid thing that uh, the British did, the British Empire did, and that was the South African War. So uh, at the end of the uh, ni- uh, uh, at the end of the eighteen hundreds uh, uh, and the beginning of uh, the nineteen hundreds. We fought this ridiculous war in South Africa. Uh, And that isn't the such topic of the day, as it were, but it's interesting to note that that was really an imperial war in its literal sense, insofar as that, uh, you know, Cecil Rhodes, uh, Cairo to the Cape Railway, the expansion of the imperial, uh, the British Empire uh, in Africa, uh, the movement north. I'm not anti-British Empire, by the way. Uh, I think it was broadly speaking, as empires go go, quite a benevolent one, <laughs> but that's that that isn't the point. The point is it was a stupid mistake, and the boer wars the boer war and and that's where, if you will, I think it starts that's where the decline and fall of the British Empire started post south african war right. and this is something that the 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 British government felt that we were friendless. Uh, and in the in the South African War, we had uh, the note from the Kaiser to the Boers, wishing them luck and selling mm. them our ordnance and selling them mm. rifles. Uh, and we were fairly close on from our constant niggles with the French and the French Empire and the Fashoda incident uh, and, and these things. So we were not popular in France. Uh, We clashed uh, in uh, from an empire perspective in Africa with the French. The Germans were looking at building a bit of empire, but it wasn't really a it wasn't really a big thing. Uh, So the British government decided they felt that we were friendless. We were friendless. And we needed friends. You know, we, we, we splendid isolation was no longer the right answer. And I think once we'd made that strategic mistake that we weren't allowed to be friendless we started then to make a series of mistakes
0: why do you think they might have thought that particularly if we've got a, a, you know still got a giant empire at that point the turn of the 20th century um you know still the empire is um, not exactly at a zenith but still massive and commercially still very successful and all that sort of thing um why why do you think the government was in that frame of mind why would we need to have um, <clears throat> I mean, an entente with France, say. Why do you think? Why do you think
1: that Are we were we not good enough on our own, so to speak? Well, I would argue that we were, right. but I think the thinking of the day was we were seeing massive growth in the uh, German Germany as industrial power, right,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, and a united Germany by that stage, of course, and, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the the federal Germany that Bismarck put together using, if you will, the Franco-Prussian War as a a sort of a catalyst to uh, let that happen. Mm. Uh, So Germany was becoming a very serious economic power to be reckoned with, as was America, Mm. uh, and as was, which isn't generally understood or generally known, Russia. Russia was becoming uh, a significant industrial power, although it hadn't caught anybody up yet, but it was moving Uh, that way. And of course, if you look at the figures, it's interesting, topical today, of course. The biggest wheat producing area in the world uh, was the Ukraine. Uh, And so the the power of Russia uh, was, was growing all the time. And I think the British took the view, we needed some friends, you know, we needed some, not necessarily military alliances, but we needed, we couldn't go on being Unpopular with everybody mm-hmm. uh, and and that I think is is the view that they that they took, and the government then let certain things happen, which i don't think they should have let happen uh, and that started with um, uh, Edward the visit to paris uh, Victoria was now in her grave. Uh, Edward the was a Francophile. He spent a lot of time in Paris uh, as the Prince of Wales uh, in the naughty nineties and so on and so forth. Uh, he was, of course, a lecher uh, and <laughs> dirty Bertie. Yeah, dirty Bertie, <laughs> and a bit of a ne'er do well. Uh, and but he, although. We were, the British Empire was very unpopular with the French, one of jealousy, of course, as always, the French were jealous of our empire, as (laughs) indeed was, was the Kaiser. Uh, You know, if you've got the biggest house on the block and the biggest car, jealousy comes up at every level. It doesn't matter. Now, Bertie, Dirty Bertie, was a, uh, a Francophile. He spoke good French. And he was a useful, uh, he was a useful person to keep the lid, if you will, on any French enmity. And of course, uh, the French are our natural enemies and have been for a thousand years. And I would argue still are uh, politically. We've all mm. got French friends mm. and I have some very dear French friends. But the long and short of it is politically and strategically, the French don't like us. Uh, and th- that's just a matter of fact. And, and, and it hasn't changed today, as we can see almost every day. You can see the way that that pans out. Mm. Um, So this is the problem that we had. Now, we also decided that it didn't have to be France. Uh, A a, a strategic alliance with Germany would have been a valuable asset. A strategic alliance, not a treaty. So this was also thinking. And we had our ambassador in Berlin, uh, in the Edwardian area, was a man called Goshen, who was German-born he was a banker in point of fact and uh, an Anglophile, uh, and an English an Englishman all there, but he was a, a german born uh, and so, so there was him and there was Haldane uh, who uh, was responsible for a lot of military uh, work and a, a lot of reforms the Haldane reforms or all, all, all of this kind of thing who felt that an uh, an entente with germany would be more valuable and from a geopolitical uh strategy um if you look at the map it's quite obvious uh, if you are a strategist by profession if you look at it that germany is a much more natural ally to us than france uh because it's it's our second front Hmm. it's in the middle as it were so from that perspective and it also had no real serious threat to our empire it didn't really want more land uh, as an empire because the Germans historically, geostrategically, politically, militarily, have always looked east, not really west. They 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 haven't looked west for expansion. They've always looked east for expansion.
0: No, well, ask a couple of quick say a couple of quick things. Yes, there.
1: of course. Um, of course, it's not crazy to
0: think of Britain and Germany having some sort of deep strategic alliance because, of course the kaiser and the king and the tsar all being cousins and all that sort of thing really quite close it seems um but it does come up and i i also agree with you that in a very very broad sense it didn't seem like germany was or had any real realistic chance of uh competing in terms of sort of land mass and resources with the british empire I mean they were too late to the game in sort of the race for colonial expansion throughout the entire world the naval arms race, though, that seems to me some of the hooks running up to World War One. It seem it, it doesn't seem like they were exaggerating or lying that the Tirpitz and the Germans did genuinely want to or try to, at least for a window of time in the two or three years before nineteen fourteen, they'd sort of realized they'd lost and given up. But in the early, very early years of the twentieth century, it seems like the Germans did genuinely want to try and Rivalous in terms of uh, sort of in, in the navy naval arms race, that is a genuine
1: threat, is it not? That yes, is, that is
0: sort of that is real. Oh,
1: very real. Right, very real. Um, and it was interesting uh, German politics at the you know the race uh, our dreadnoughts yeah, uh, we want eight and we won't wait and mm-hmm. and, the, and the budgets and all these kind of things the naval budgets uh, and the British won the race. Uh, uh, And the interesting thing was that the Kaiser wanted to match the strength of the Royal Navy. That's something he personally wanted to do. Now, his chiefs of staff and his military staff said, you know, Your Majesty, you're spending all this money on these ships, which are of no real important value to us. We want the money for armaments for our army. They didn't say, let's be peaceful Mm. or, you know, don't let's Mm. do this. They said, no, Mm. we could have bigger, more guns, uh, more rifles, more army, which is the sort of thing that we're more likely to need Mm. than a fleet because we don't have an empire. We've got nothing to protect. Um, So this is really uh, a race that doesn't need to happen. But, of course, from the British perspective, which is why Haldane went to Berlin to see what he could do, uh, to say, look, you know, why are you doing this? it's making us nervous. We don't want to spend all this money on the, on the naval, uh, naval money. We don't want to build all these dreadnoughts um, because dreadnoughts aren't really something that we want. You know, we want to protect our empire. And what we really want are cruisers, or what we don't battle cruisers. We yeah, don't want yeah. these heavy things, which we're now having to build because you're building them uh, for the North Sea, which is a heavy ship environment and the Channel. So it's horses for courses. What are we building? Uh, and Haldane said, look, can't, you know, there must be a deal here somewhere. Uh, and he said, Can't, look, if you stop building your ships, uh, you know, um, we'll stop building our ships. And, and, and then the Germans said, well, OK, we want some strategic agreements to do that so that you will never side with France in a conflict, for example, mm. okay? or to that, whatever it was, 1906, 1907. Well, well, well before uh, 1914. And uh, we couldn't get an agreement. And uh, which I think was a great shame. That was, another, sh- sh- that was another thing that could have been done. An opportunity missed. It was another opportunity missed. Uh, but and that's of course,
0: interesting, isn't it? That, that, wasn't, that, that we couldn't get an agreement with them. Uh, you know, like what, you know. We should, to, we should have really said to him, yeah. Why not? What's the problem here, Kaiser Bill? You know, yeah. why can't we sort why, something why, out here? Why can't you, we do
1: this? What you, to, you can see this as why we would be suspicious on our side. It's it certainly, and there's no, I'm not attaching blame here to the German side. In fact, none of my hypothesis or prophe- hypotheses is based on uh, one side or the other, because you, you can't do that. Uh, as AJP Taylor, you know, when said, as, his, as an historian, he said, you cannot lay a 2023 template on, you know, 1906. They thought differently. The situation was differently. It's a mistake that some historians make. Uh, because they think, oh, we, we shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. So I'll, I'll come to my hypothesis a bit in, in, in a bit. Sure. But what I haven't done, tried to do, is be smart after the event mm-hmm. because that's not the historian's job. Anybody, a sixth former, yeah, sure. you could do it again. And <laughs> the history A level, being smart after the event doesn't make you an historian. Uh, so, yes, that was an opportunity missed in my view. The German attitude was very hostile which was based on personalities from what I can read, what I can deduce from jealousy, from the kinds of jealousy, from the high command. Uh, and the, these are the kind of things that sort of just ratcheted up. And, and, and when one bears in mind the men under arms at the time, uh, in the, uh, in, you know, from sort of the Franco-Prussian War onwards, let's just say mm-hmm. it went before that. But let's take it from there mm-hmm. where well, you're dealing with uh, standing armies of one and a half million in France, one and a half million in uh, plus in Germany, uh, two million in Russia with an immediate reserve program mm. to put into the field if if uh, you know if need be. So we're dealing with monster standing armies, which has never been a British thing. Of course, it's never been a British thing. There was Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy go away, of course. (laughs) Uh, So we have these things Uh, now. um, So they've got their standing armies. Uh, The Germans are uh, feeling that they're being encircled. So they're bound to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which some German high command said was shackled to a Rotting corpse, Mm, which indeed they were. uh, We saw Russia building a very modern railway system, which the Germans, of course, already had, but the Russians hadn't. But they were actually developing their rail systems, which, of course, is about mobilization and logistics. So the Russians were moving forward. Uh, The Germans felt there was a view of encirclement or potential encirclement. And then, of course, the French had an alliance with the Russians. They, they, they got an alliance with the Russians. That got the Germans thinking, we're very uncomfortable with this. Mm. Uh, and, mm. and, and so that, that's where we were. So we tried with Germany, we couldn't get a deal with Germany. Uh, and of course, by this stage, the French, uh, the French had had a visit from King Edward VII. Uh, there was a reciprocal visit by the French prime minister. Uh, who was cheered in the streets of London because we thought this is, you know, friendship with the French, the Entente Cordiale. But the Entente Cordiale, of course, was simply about areas, spheres of influence, spheres of influence, Uh, colonial Africa. We'll keep out of North Africa. We're not interested in Morocco. Uh, uh, You know, we're not interested in that end of Africa. We're in this end of Africa where the gold and the diamonds are, Mm. you know, because we're not (laughs) stupid. Uh, So that's uh, uh, so. So that was. That was really what the Entente cordiale was all about. And of course, the French loved King Edward VII. Uh, he, was a, he loved his haute cuisine. Uh, he loved his crumpet, you know, he loved <laughs> he, all the things. And he loved his wine. And uh, so the French thought really he was a jolly good bloke and he spoke French. And they said, actually, you know, for an Englishman, uh, he's not a bad guy. Uh, and uh, so he did bond that. He did that. Uh, he did that on his visits, and of which several as a Prince of Wales and, and, and King Edward VII and, and this kind of thing. So the Entente Cordiale, which not with the parliament, there was no par- parliamentary authority here. Right. He didn't have any parliamentary authority uh, to do mm-hmm. this. Uh, it sort of got a bit out of control. Now, there's a man at history's Can start. Can I just
0: say one thing, just to sure. Just say, the alliance between France and Russia, though, that was a full blown, legal, that was, that was a full blown, locked in yeah. legal treaty. Yeah. Whereas our Entente Cordiale with the French wasn't,
1: wasn't so treaty. much. That. It was a nod and a wink,
0: right,
1: right. And that makes a lot of difference when we come up to oh, the, not half the Guns of August. And of course, the, now the nod and the wink goes further, and this is part of the thread of the problem. The nod and the wink was created by a man called Henry Wilson, uh, who was a, a general, uh, a staff general, who went with King Edward the uh, and he had a rapport with the French. Uh, high command, and gave them implications of support for which he had no authority to do at all. Like, well, don't worry about it, but because if the Germans ever invade France, we will come to your aid. But the government won't sign any contracts to that effect, because they can't get it through politically. Mm. The British people will not accept a treaty with France to defend France with Germany. Not when the Franco... Prussian war is in living memory here. Mm, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, they're yeah. not going to do that. It would be madness to do that. But nudge, nudge, nods as good as a wink, which is what was going on. And this comes back to bite us in the arse a bit later. So, everybody's cheering. The Entente Cordiale is wonderful. And you've got intriguers like Henry Wilson and other intriguers, uh, you know, behind the throne in both countries. So, you have this problem going on. Now, How's that going to pan out? Well, it's going to pan out very badly if we're not very careful. And so when we have the uh, Archduke Ferdinand uh, uh, assassinated uh, and there being war in the Balkans, which everybody forgets a little bit, there was two years of war in the Balkans before 1914. So it was very... It was a tinderbox anyway, which the Balkans always is. Mm, mm. Nothing much has changed. Uh, yeah. So you've got your problem with the Balkans. Now, on top of that, you have Serbia, and the Austrians hated the Serbians. Funnily enough, uh, everybody seems to hate the Serbians, uh, mm. and, they, and that's as true today as it ever, ever was. It's difficult to find to dig down and find out sort of why, because you need to be of the Balkans to fully understand it. Mm. But of course, then you had Russia taking the view that they were protector of the Slavs, Pan-Slavic, mm. uh, uh, so that they had a, felt they had a moral obligation to the Slavs of Serbia. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had mobilized twice already before, incidentally, in the Balkan War and stood down, then when this happened, the assassination happened, uh, put forward the note to Serbia a very long note, that they had to um, agree to a very humiliating document in point of fact. Something
0: they couldn't really agree to, right? Well, that, and that was the point of it, do you think?
1: Well, yeah, that's an interesting point that you make because there are some people who would say that is so, and some people who say that's not quite so. I'm sort of a not-quite-so person, uh, because technically speaking, you're right. But again, using the AJP Taylor uh, uh, idea that if you take yourself back uh, to that time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire wanted to remain a first-rate power, which they weren't really uh, by that stage. It was a bit ramshackle uh, and not really going anywhere. Um, But they wanted to maintain that. So they wanted to humiliate Serbia. And they put forward, obviously, the, the document. Now, as far as the world was concerned, and amount, this was really about theatre, this was about show business, if you will, the world reckoned it was a very, very humiliating document, uh, and they agreed to most of it, not all of it. And there were things that they didn't agree to. But superficially, they agreed to enough of it, certainly to impress the Kaiser. The Kaiser regarded that mm. as a job done, no need for war, mm. and to just... Give you a view. I think very few people wanted war, whether they were German, uh, Austro Hungarian, Russians. I don't think anybody really wanted war, except a few individuals. Mm. I'll come to those mm. a bit later on.
0: Well, there's famously some letters between the Kaiser and the Tsar saying, let's do anything we can. To uh, avoid cousin war, to you're right, yeah. yeah. And in the government, the Liberal government of Asquith and, and the didn't and, want war. And Gray, the Liberals didn't want war. And, yeah, Sir Edward Gray was saying, We've done everything to avoid war. That, that's um, right.
1: And there's, uh, that, you're quite right. And that is an argument that is under pressure at the moment um, because there is a view that there were very senior people in the British government who actually did want a war. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon because. Trying to feel the build up of the time uh, and the. The difficulties of the time, you find yourself in a situation where you've got all these men under arms. You've had trouble in the Balkans. The Franco-Prussian war is in living memory, so Mm. it's all bubbling away here. Mm. Mm. And I think there was a general view, a more general view from the British, the British government or the British political system, as it were, the Royal Navy and the French and everybody else, the, a war was inevitable at some stage. Mm, mm, it, it would mm, be difficult mm. to avoid war at some stage. The way things were going, mm. uh, you know, the, the 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 clouds were gathering in in nineteen twelve, nineteen thirteen. You had the yeah, the, the, yeah, incident, yeah. the Agadir and so on. You had all these things clashes, not big in their own right, but you. You know, there's something going on. It's not there's an animosity there Mm -hmm. uh, going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you take the view that that this was the case, so you had the German high command thinking there was a strong view that the German high command wanted to go to war in 1915 or 16, they said, we're not ready.
0: Yeah,
1: we're not ready for Mm -hmm. war yet, but we're ready in 1916. And then we go. Mm -hmm. So and I think that was generally understood perhaps by the British government or the British front office, to say, just a minute, if it's not 1914, it's going to be 1916. Mm. Mm. So now it's sort of, now's as good a time as any. Uh, but this is only a few, this is only a few, but they're people of influence. So you have uh, big imperialists behind the scenes like Alfred Milner uh, and uh, names that aren't necessarily on the top shelf at the moment, but they're there all the time running through. Uh, and his experience in, in, in of the, of the South African war, he's an imperialist. Uh, you also have Winston Churchill, who was as bellicose in 1914 as he was in 1939. Uh, uh, very keen on war behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the, the the kitchen cabinet, as it were, you had Uh, Lloyd George, who didn't want a war because he was a liberal and he wanted social reform in the main. He was impoverished. He was also a lecturer. He was open. He was open to financial support, which it looks like came from the Rothschilds. And the Rothschilds are always fairly keen on the war because you make money. They made money. The family made money in the Napoleonic Wars. They made money all through the, uh, the 19th century. They're always there. They're there now. Mm. They're there now mm. uh, because it's an international you family. You should really have pattern. noticed
0: that, Godfrey. It's not really, not really cricket of you to have noticed <laughs> that. No. Um, <laughs> one thing I just want to say, just super quick before you carry on, yeah. is I think it's very interesting that you've got... It's like both things are happening at the same time. That seems to be the more realistic representation of of reality. So for example, you've got doves and hawks in all the countries all at once. Yeah. So in Germany, for example, you've got the Kaiser still trying to make (laughs) peace even at the last moment with the Tsar, etc, etc. But then the high command made the Schlieffen plan in like 1905 or 1906. Should we have to go to war? You know, years ago, you mentioned 1912, I think even in 1912, 1913, you can find newspapers of the day saying, writing articles that war is inevitable it might not be tomorrow but you know everyone sort of realizes war is inevitable at some stage um there's there's some um sort of fairly famous quotes of the kaiser um saying or letting his minister say things about that he doesn't want to put anyone else in shadow but germany really deserves uh its place in the sun this is years before 1914 of course so the, the, the key players saying contradictory things and the people below them, you've got doves and hawks, the whole time this is going on. And exactly. that's a bit—that's quite complicated, isn't it? It's, I think a lot but, of yeah. historians, a lot of people like to think, oh, it's just one thing or the other. But yeah. in fact, reality is much more complicated it's always than that. More, it's really?
1: all, war is always more complicated, which is why I fast forward, fast back, as it were, to the South African War because I think that's where it all starts it's round about sort of round about the south african war the beginning of the 20th century that that's where you can... you could go further back uh, but you know you... we find the Boer have got a lot of crap guns yeah exactly exactly so worrying. you can see it you you can mm. see it starting from there and of course it goes all the way through it goes up with the fleet it goes up with the uh, edward VII's uh, visits uh, it goes uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the press 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 Because you've got the Northcliffe Press, uh, which was lobbying or anti-German lobbying for war. And your press baron normally has somebody behind him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we don't know because a lot of stuff's been burnt or got rid of or hidden. Uh, We don't know who it was. Uh, Was it Milner uh, behind the scenes? Uh, Was it um, Churchill? Was it all these people behind the scenes and the Rothschilds who wanted a war, who thought war was good for whatever reason, they were hawks. We don't always know why they were a hawk, but there are some people who are hawks uh, and some people are doves, but they uh, they were hawks. And once you've got the, the press, once you've got the Daily Mail and the Daily Express actually painting the picture of these guys are the bad guys, these guys are the bully boys, the Kaiser's a bully boy, all of which is quite easy because the Germans did it to themselves. You know, they'd shut up uh, for a bit. But you, a modern democracy cannot fight a war without the will of the people. You can't do it. Uh, you have to bring the people with you. And the British government knew that there was no way that we could go to war for Austro-Hungary's war with Serbia. They knew that they couldn't sell that. Well,
0: yeah.
1: mm. uh, so uh, that 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 was press driven as wars always are. And if you look at the Daily Express today and the Daily Mail, Mm. the Russians are really bad people and the Ukrainians are really beautiful people. The whole thing is ludicrous, Mm -hmm. but if you ask the man in the pub what he thinks, that's what he'll tell you because that's the only information he's been given. Mm. He doesn't know anything else about it. He thinks that, for example, Putin woke up one morning and was born and invaded the Ukraine. (laughs) <clears throat> That's their take on the subject, because they're not allowed to know anything else. Uh, so uh, the, the press today are just the same now. The Daily Express is the Daily Express of 1914, mm-hmm. uh, winding everybody up, uh, and this is one of the problems. I mean, I'm ex-World uh, College of Defence Studies, but I go into the pub, as I often do. I'm part to pubs. Um, <laughs> the man who read this morning's Daily Express believes he's my equal. Uh, and, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. He, he's the, the man on the Claphamondi bus. And once you've captured the man on the Cl- Claphamondi bus to believe that, uh, you then get this role towards war and you've brought the people with you. Uh, and uh, we, we, we've seen this, you know, for decades and decades in any way. It doesn't matter which war you've got. The press have worked this one up uh, for you to, you know, have this view or the other.
0: Can I ask you a broad question before we go further into sort of the, the July crisis? Um, so I think that's where we were heading. Yeah. Can I, I wanna, I'd love to ask you a, quite a broad question here. And you've mentioned the Franco-Prussian War a couple of times there. And I feel like um, historians sometimes make the argument that World War II is, in, in all sorts of senses, a continuation of the First War. I feel like it's not as strongly a, the case, but that the First World War is born out of, in, some, in all sorts of different senses, Franco Prussian War. And if anyone out there doesn't know, in 1870 71, um, Bismarck, uh, or, or, well, the Germans invade France essentially, get all the way to Paris, surround Paris. The Paris, Paris government falls. France has all sorts of existential crisis. Anyway, the whole point of that is that Germany in the very early 1870s completely dominate France, really. And as you say, it's in living memory by 1914. That's still within living memory. The elder statesmen of the day were younger officers at that point, right? Someone like Clemenceau was a junior officer in 1817. So it's within living memory. So I'd like to ask you this idea that um, lots of people in uh, in France and even in Britain don't want to see that happen again uh, for all sorts of different reasons. They fear that maybe Germany is becoming, you mentioned right at the beginning as well, that the German economy, I think, was the third biggest economy in the world just before World War One started. Only the British Empire in America was bigger. Their industrial output was huge. Their navy was, you know, not not really actually um, uh, bigger than the British navy in any way, but it was sort of, it was worryingly large at least. The Battle of Jutland wasn't a complete walk over in the end, was it? They had like 100 ships at Jutland. So the point is, if they could do what they did in 1870, 71, and we feared that they might do something like that again, if you combined that, and their giant armies you mentioned, a million, a million and a half men, if their Navy was anywhere near capable of of doing what Napoleon never was able to, i.e. control the channel, even if it's for one day or something, suddenly then it, they are an existential threat to the, to the British Isles. Um, is all of that a
1: crazy nonsense to you? No, I think it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a rational assessment. It's a rational assessment, but it's flawed in my view, militarily and navally in, in, in a few ways. Not massively flawed. Uh, but, but I am playing devil's advocate yeah, here. No, just absolutely. To... <laughs> no, I understand. And rightly so. Uh, if you look at the... If you look at the very significant reparations that were after the Franco-Prussian War that the Germans wanted and the French had to cede, of course, Alsace-Lorraine, uh, as we all know, every schoolboy used to know that. Hmm. I don't want to teach them today, but every schoolboy used to know that. Uh, one can look to see if there was a French desire to regain Alsace-Lorraine or have retribution for the Franco-Prussian War. There is no evidence of this. Uh, it's sort of a good story, but there's no real hardcore evidence. So if you're a f- forensic historian, you can't find it, and I suspect you can't find it because it's not there. And if you think, of course, uh, of the post-Franco Prussian War, La Belle Epoque, uh, and the art uh, and the that period. In French history, I would argue one of the best periods in many regards of French history. And if you gave me a time machine of places I'd like to go, France in the Belle Pep would be one of them, Mm. without question. Mm. Uh, Very romantic, marvellous. Well, the King of the Seventh liked it so much. Paris in the 1890s. Well, yeah, I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. I'm I'm Mm. as dirty as Bertie. (laughs) Uh, Well, not now I'm too old, but I, I was... Uh, so, yeah, that's good. Uh, but it does, that, that doesn't stack up. We kept out of the Franco-Prussian war. Didn't cost us a dime. Not a problem at all. Uh, and I think if one was going to look at it rationally, one would say, look, we didn't get involved last time. And if you think uh, the balance of power argument under Palmerston, to just go back to Palmerston for a second, when the, the Prussians invaded uh, Denmark, which was against everything that we wanted and the balance of power. And Palmerston said, well, what can I do? There's a million and a half of the buggers. There's nothing I can do. We've got a big Navy, but that doesn't help us in this case. Mm -hmm. Pragmatism, realpolitik, as we would call it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the view, I think, of the British was we didn't trust the Germans. We were frightened of the Germans. We were fearful. But I think if there had been wiser councils prevailing that if Germany had taken on France, who didn't want war, and we didn't really think uh, Germany wanted war, and I still believe that France and Germany didn't want war. But looking east, the thing that feared the Germans most was the massive uh, military buildup of Russia. And as I said before, they look east. The Germans look east. They don't look west. And of course, the Schiffen plan, as you mentioned, uh, was flawed from the beginning. It was a flawed plan. The right hook to go around Paris uh, and and, and over in three weeks so they could actually get their railway timetables to send all those troops back Mm. to the Russian front uh, which was the geopolitical strategy of the day? That was the Schlieffen Plan, which broke down because it was, it was not feasible. It wasn't feasible. The logistics of the of, of the German army going behind Paris just weren't going to work. So it's split, of course, as history knows. The armies were split, and the French stopped them on the Marne. The Miracle of the Marne. And mm, uh, mm. I'll come back to that because that's very relevant mm. here. Uh, so no, you no, have- just
0: to say, the Germans did do something. Similar in 1870 71. It wasn't, it wasn't a right hook around Paris and it wasn't all over within a month, but nonetheless, they did essentially militarily best the French yes. quickly.
1: Yes, and they did. And, that and was... Mr.
0: Hitler did it again in 1940, yeah, didn't he? So, did, um, it's, yeah, not two military reasons. it's not
1: inconceivable. Yeah, you're absolutely um, right. T- there were two military reasons. In the Franco Prussian War, the military reason, well, actually, funnily enough, the French had the best rifle of the day. The best rifle the French army had, better than British, better than German, even it was bad. But what did the Germans have? They had really heavy ordnance. They had howitzers, high explosive. You know, uh, they had sort you of know, five point nine inch guns and all the rest of it, uh, and, and naval guns and guns, the, the artillery pieces. So of course, the French defense in the Franco-Prussian War was based on the forts of Verdun and Metz sedan, mm. uh, which were mm. destroyed mm. by this heavy artillery. And that was their win. And of course, if you fast forward to uh, the Blitz 1940, of course, it was Blitzkrieg with tanks and air support. They had a different way of fighting the war. Mm. So yeah. they won that military. Now in 1914, um, it was not so simple. It was not so unbalanced. <laughs> no, so the logistic supply line, which is so important, you, you know, your guns, Uh, your ammunition, your food, all these things you need were having to go too far. So they had a logistical problem, not because it broke down in the field, because it was never going to work. It was never going to work anyway. It was too far. And the French stopped them on the Marne. I'll come back to that in a minute. I'll get out of kilter if I'm not careful. Uh, So where are we? Where does this take us? Where does this take us uh, in the last, in July? Let's just talk about July in a bit. How can we get out of this? We've got uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is mobilizing uh, because they are determined to have a war with Serbia. They're determined to crush Serbia. You know, they put out lots of pamphlets and stuff like propaganda saying, we're not really, we just want to teach them a lesson, but we have no histor- we have no territorial ambition uh, on Serbia. Well, you could believe that or not. You believe it or not. We're never going to know, are we? Uh, so we're never really going to know. Uh, so that we had that problem, the Australia, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then we had, of course, Germany, who was bound to Austria-Hungary. Uh, and of course, the Russian front that went all the way. Uh, so th- there was an idea that the Russians could only mobilize uh, the areas uh, on Kiev, uh, Odessa, uh, and a bit further up, I can't remember the name of those Russian areas. They could mobilize that because they only, they only mobilized against the austro Hungarian empire if they moved on to crush Serbia, which they're obviously going to do because they would already mobilized. Mm. So we had Mm. a partial mobilization from Russia. Um, And again, this is fairly subjective, whether whether you can actually in those days or even now stop that level of mobilization when you need to raise your reservists. I mean, you've got a million reservists. The French have a million reservists. The Germans have a million reservists. Mobilisation is a very tricky game. You know, mm. it's it's a complicated game. You've got railway timetables. Uh, you've got all sorts of stuff. You know, giving soldiers their weapons. Uh, the reservists don't have them. They have to be weapons. Are they trained? Yes, they are. Uh, the French, the German reservists were very good. The French reservists were quite good. Uh, the Russian reservists were really just had nothing at all except the uniform they stood up in Mm. one rifle
0: between six men and things like that exactly but there's a lot of men
1: yeah Uh, so you have all this kind of problem so once things starts to kick off it's almost difficult almost impossible to stop now the french actually withdrew back from the frontier uh, by 15 kilometers they didn't want anything to kick off by accident Mm. uh you know so the that tells me the french didn't want a war Mm. But the Schlieffen Plan, as, as, as it was, you, they had to advance to make that work through Belgium. Now, here's something that I've, I've met historians, American historians in particular, who haven't done their homework. Our commitment, we had no treaty commitment to Belgium in 1940. That 1914. really was a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it was, say no more. Sort yeah, of, yeah, it was, the, the, the treaty I think was uh, of 1830 was tripartite. It was Germany, France. To preserve Belgian neutrality, and it was a Palmerstonian idea, was to actually do that—to have a buffer between the Germans and the French, who couldn't stop fighting each That's other.
0: That's a good couple of generations previous, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, That's a long time ago, oh, yeah. really. Uh, now, and that was the that was the situation. So uh, we had this uh, situation where we are not obliged under treaty to protect because. And if you look at Hansard in 1914, you will not find anybody making the argument that we had a treaty obligation, none. No, right, yeah. But I know historians who think we did. Sloppy, <laughs> a sloppy <laughs> historical work. I don't like that kind of thing. So, you know, there wasn't. So the whole thing pins on a moral obligation. Mm-hmm. So when the German army started to carry out its Schlieffen plan coming through Belgium. And then we had the Northcliffe Press with the Germans bayoneting the babies uh, and, you know, being bestial on the same sort of shit you hear about, you know, the Russians in the Ukraine today. You know, you need plenty of publicity to wind everybody up. And again, the Germans brought some of this on themselves uh, by behaving badly when they invaded Belgium. They burnt the Louvain medieval library, for example. They, They carried out acts which were very worthy of your traditional Hun. Um, okay. So there were things, uh, they, they fed the thing because they're pretty stupid. The German, the German uh, military Prussian view was pretty stupid. I mean, shooting Edith Cavell. I mean, how stupid was that? If you really wanted to upset the Americans, you shoot a woman, don't you? I mean, anyway, uh, that's moving to 1915. <coughs> but you have this situation, <coughs> excuse me, you have this situation where Belgium's been invaded. And we knew that it happened, to be we knew that the Schlieffen Plan would get rid of the, you know, neutral Belgium. We couldn't do anything about that. But we don't have an army. We don't have an army to speak of. Right, yeah. um, the British expeditionary force was 80,000 men strong.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's not nothing, but compared to the it, what was it? it was well over
1: a million men, wasn't it? The Yeah, Germans so were we, only a, there, we only so had, we only had, you know, a few divisions yeah. in the field, yeah. all the way down to the Marne, all the way, from, yeah. right, that was all French army. So we had no army to speak of in 1914, because the British army was a police force for the empire, really. We had a very good army, but it was small. It was too small for a major warfare uh, on the continent. It was never designed for that. So we went in in 1914, with no no artillery, we had uh, 50, 16 pounders. I can't remember, but, but you know, light artillery, not much of that. No shells, no artillery, uh, uh, no artillery shells. So we didn't really have much to fight with. We just had a very, very good, very efficient, tiny army, pocket army, uh, and, so, and so that was good. So now, uh, how could we have? How could we have stopped? Now the French didn't expect us to send an army. They wanted us, because we were. A remember the major superpower on the planet. Mm, mm. London was the richest capital in the world. We were the richest nation in the world, richer than America, richer than everything, uh, empire included. You know, putting it, lobbing it all together. So we were very rich, and we had the biggest navy the world's ever seen, and very modern. Not necessarily mm. very well handled uh, by Beatty, in my view, but. Uh, Well, that gets us down another rabbit hole. We won't go down there. Um, So uh, we had this situation. Now, this is where my hypothesis really kicks in. The Kaiser, uh, we we, we took a view that, oh, we can't have the Northern Channel ports. We can't have the French Northern Channel ports occupied by a hostile power, i.e. Germany. And Kaiser, the Kaiser made it quite clear he had no interest in the North German ports. Uh, or, or upsetting them or interfering with the commercial. He, d- he said he don't want that. And we know he didn't want that because the Schlieffen plan had nothing to do with the northern por- ports. It came through and w- wanted to hook round uh, Paris. That was part of the Schlieffen plan. So he said, I won't touch them. You know, I will give you a guarantee that I won't touch them. Now, this is where I suggest that we could have come in for the good of mankind. What we should have then said, with our huge navy and no army, our huge navy, we could have said, "Look, we've already mobilised our navy because Churchill mobilised without the permission of Parliament or anything. But he he mobilised the army and uh, the navy in late July because there had been a Spithead review, and, the, and 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 to all intents and purposes, the Royal Navy was mobilised. So it was there. So what we could have done, and this is where I think the key is." We should have said to the Germans, we could have sent somebody or, you know, either Goshen or Haldane or they were German speakers uh, and say, look, th- this already started. The war's already started. We're not going to come into it. But and here's the but the British people feel after being wound up by the Northcliffe press with, you know, babies on bayonets and all the rest of it, which was a government or certainly a Churchill and Rothschild thing. That, that obviously happened. To say, look, we're going to make sure that we're mobilising, we've mobilised the Royal Navy. The, the North Sea is ours. It's our pond. And the English Channel is our pond. You will not go to sea. If you go to sea, we'll come into the war and we'll fight naval battles accordingly. None of the German high command wanted any of that. They knew they couldn't beat the Royal Navy in a big fight. Mm, mm. Um, We know that Jutland was a uh, was a bit of a mishmash and all the rest of it in 1916. But what we do know is that the Germans went back to port and never came out again. Mm. So they were never going to. They were never. It was never really going to work. We could have said the North Sea is ours, the Channel's ours. And we'll stay out of the war. Now, here's just extending my point. We didn't have enough soldiers going with our British Expeditionary Force to make any difference to what actually happened on the French Front and Belgian Front. The French would still have stopped the Germans on the Marne. You think so? Oh yes. And I've visited the battlefields, you know, I've been there, I've done all this sort of stuff. and, And if you look at the sheer numbers, the sheer numbers, you can say that it... I'm not suggesting the British Expeditionary Force didn't make a difference. It did. And there would be some different lines on the map if they hadn't been there on the treat from Mons and all the rest of it. Fought very well and very bravely, very good. And that's another Mm, rabbit hole. mm, Uh, mm. But yeah, all all that. So I'm not denigrating anything like that. But if you just look at the numbers and reservists and so on and so forth, you would have found that lines would have been drawn slightly differently, but they would have still been trenches from the English Channel to the Swiss border. It wouldn't have looked quite like it looked. So (laughs) stalemate. The Germans couldn't stay there because they had the battles to fight on the other front, the Russian front, uh, Tannenberg and uh, <laughs> Duke of Wellington had been fighting the Russian army on the Russian front, of course, they'd have, they'd have <laughs> beaten the Germans. They, were, they made stupid, basic tactical mistakes. Leaving us another rabbit hole. Uh, so you eventually held up uh, with a stalemate. By Christmas Eve, uh, the casualties were roundabout on all sides, a million dead. By Christmas Eve, mm. it only started in July, mm. Mm. I don't believe that with those kind of casualties, and there were peace movements at the time in all countries, largely led by females who'd lost brothers and sons and husbands, uh, uh, that kind of pressure which the British at that stage were quite good at, that sort of social reform liberal pressure by that stage, uh, you know. I would have said that what we should do is say that we won't come into the war unless you come into our pond. Uh, and it's ground to a halt. There's been a million dead. And by nine, you know, into 1915, mid-1915, there was another half a million dead on all sides. So these casualty deaths were ratcheting up in the most appalling way. <clears throat> I would say that we could have broken a peace in London to say, let's get our heads round the table because this is crazy. Uh, this this is madness, we don't need to do this, it's already cost a fortune, German debt, French debt, uh, you know, uh, the, the deaths, all this kind of thing that's happened, uh, we could actually broker a peace. Wouldn't that make more sense? And that offers, you know, still open. Uh, and that would have been a way that we could have drawn the war to a close. And if you look at the peace movements, and if you look at the peace movements before the war in Paris... Uh, and Berlin, there were big socialist worker movements trying to stop war who didn't want war. but like all fundamentally patriotic people, the French and the Germans, it didn't matter whether they were socialists or not, and trade unionists, um, they went to the colors because that's how humankind is. So we could have done that, and there would have then been a, a desire for peace on all sides and the Italians had come out of the uh, Triple Entente. The French, uh, the Italians didn't come in. And that was something that we sort of knew was going to happen. But it just really left Germany and Austro-Hungary. That was it. Turkey came in, which wasn't considered to be a big deal. Then it turned out after Gallipoli to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're big, good fighters. The Turks still are. Watch out for them. So we we could have done this uh, to the good of mankind. Now, that would have mean Goes back to something you said earlier on. That would have been if we could have broken a peace, not perhaps a lasting peace, not a lasting peace, perhaps, but a complete ceasefire to actually get round the table and see who's in what's interests. If we could have done that in early 1916, we would have saved the British casualties on the Somme, the French casualties in Verdun. Uh, And the German casualties on the other side were equally horrendous, which people tend to forget. So another million men. So there would have been a degree of wanting peace there, and it could have been round the table to do that. And that would have been to the good of mankind. And I would believe that I do believe that the 1939-45 war was an extension of the Great War. I think if we hadn't had uh, the Great War uh, the Versailles settlement, the destruction of the French, the Russian monarchy, which was going to come anyway sooner or later, but not under those circumstances, perhaps. Um, There would have been something to do, something to trade. And I regard that would have stopped. There would not have been a war. There would have been no Third Reich. Uh, There would have been none of these things. And that would have been to the good of Europe. The Americans would not have come in. The British Empire, or then would have morphed into a Commonwealth, would have remained. I think, for a force for good. And the world would have looked a very much better place. And I believe it would look a better place today because I never believe that war actually solves very much in the long term. Uh, mm. And the fly in the ointment, when we tried to make an advance for peace in late 1916, when we were already in, mm. uh, was really um, stopped by Ludendorff, uh, who would not discuss peace at any price. So as always you get these people who pop up and then you had lloyd george who had a complete change no it's got to be total war and complete victory you had the same thing from ludendorff you get these mm. individuals and history looks back at them and say what were they thinking why mm. would they be thinking like that when so many young men on every side had died to no to no purpose quite obviously to no purpose mm. at that stage mm. uh, what were they thinking to go on and on and on grinding on in the same way we see it today, we see it, the war is virtually over in Ukraine. doesn't matter whether you're pro this or pro that. Uh, and when we had Boris Johnson stopping the peace negotiations then uh, 14 months ago, there's a record an estimated another 200,000 young Ukrainians have died. Mm. That was a time what persuaded him to fly out and stop the peace process, which was virtually already moving quite well forward why, why do people do this
0: very good question very good question that's just one more of boris's crimes in my opinion yeah when he did that yeah that was a moment in time people don't really talk about it very much um a couple of things you've said so many interesting amazing so many things there so many rabbit holes as you say yes that i'd love to go into if we could go back to if i'd, I'd like to take you back to that uh it's uh, so probably the last time i mentioned it but the naval side of things sure that thing you said where we could have said to the Germans, um, look, the North Sea and the Channel is ours. Don't come out of port. You've got no chance anyway. I know that for years and years, Tirpitz has all, has had always said, we've got no chance against the Royal Navy, if it comes down to it. Um, uh, everyone wants me to do an episode on Jutland, and I will do it at some point. And I think Wikipedia, or some historians anyway, say it was sort of indecisive. It was pretty was damn very, decisive. It was, it was very, very decisive, decisive. But essentially. But then they Wikipedia, you know, come on. They couldn't stop us from blockading them. And uh, any, anyway, the point mm. is, is that when it came to it, the Royal Navy uh, was not... They were not able to defeat the Royal Navy, the Navy. And they sort of always knew it and all that sort of thing. So I completely go with you on that. that. I would have thought the Germans would completely agree with you. You mentioned Hansard there. Uh, which anyone who doesn't know some Americans is, um, you know, the transcripts of what's said in Parliament, basically. I listened to a speech by um, uh, Sir Edward Grey, later First Viscount Grey, our Foreign Secretary at the time. Um, And he said, in Parliament, it's quite, I think, a fairly famous speech, and he said, uh, yeah, at no point did he claim that we had any formal agreement with Belgium. He just sort of used fairly vague language about, it's our obligation and it's part of our honour to uh, defend neutral Belgium, and where where would we be? we'd be so shameful if we didn't defend neutral Belgium and that sort of thing? And, but he does say, he does explicitly say, well, what if the Kaiser's um, battleships and the few sort of dreadnought level ships they've got, battleships and things, what if they were to threaten our uh, uh, threaten threaten the British Isles? He explicitly says that. And but you're now you're saying, and I believe you, I'm not questioning you. But you were saying there that the Kaiser had said that he's got no intention of doing that. So, but that does mean then that Edward Grey was being, being well, lying or just being deliberately uh, offhand with the truth. I don't know how to say it exactly. I, he, was, he was playing yeah. politics
1: there. It's a, you make a very good point because the speech, of course, as we know, was uninspiring. It, it, it was vague and uninspiring. I've read the speech on a number of occasions, of course.
0: Ransom McDonald sort of blew it out of the water in real time, didn't he? Straight away.
1: Exactly. All right. So now, uh, getting back to the AJP Taylor uh, thesis that, you know, you can't put a template today on on then. So here we have a very stoked up, press stoked up uh, young men uh, in the country, you know, wanting to flock to the colours, wanting to get into uniform for poor little Belgium. I understand that. I understand that uh, because young men will be young men and war is adventure. And a lot of these poor sods were, you know, down on the farm or working in a factory or, you know, and here was glamour. He was getting uniform. I understand all of this. I was a young man, impossible though it is to believe today. I was a young man myself. Now you could have siphoned that off. Uh, Those men wanted to get into uniform. Now what you could have done with the Uh, Haldane Reforms had a territorial army force, which is a very good force, a very strong force, or potentially strong force, uh, as it was in uh, the last war. A battle on a just astonishing, rabbit-hole again. Uh, So a civilian army. You could have put all those men into uniform, trained all those men. Your 150,000-odd strong regular army would have been its leaders and its trainers. You could have built an army, as we did by 1916, you could have built an army uh, of of several, a million men probably, or just under a million men, well-trained and well-equipped. But not to send anywhere, but to be in uniform, armed and trained in our island fortress. By which time the casualties would have been coming in. Uh, my grandfather i discussed with because I'm of an age where my grandfather was, two grandfathers involved in all this kind of thing, and I had long chats even when I was a precocious eighteen-year-old. And they said, my my grandfather, my father's side, particularly said, you know, rushed to the colours in 19. He said uh, and was refused for a heart murmur, uh, and you know, and 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 he said then they were taking people with heart murmurs you know, in in 1960, because it was only the Sufi. He had to be very fit in 1914 Mm. to be one of the first 100,000. And he said, by 1916, we were all getting wise, which Mm. is why, of course, you needed conscription. And uh, you needed, um, they had to bring through conscription, which was, I think, driven by Alfred Milner. Again, that name crops up again. Balliol College, imperialist, which is an anathema to this country Mm. because it's slavery. Mm. Mm. What you're talking about is conscription. To make somebody go and fight a war who doesn't want to go, that isn't right. There's no moral dynamic for that at all. Conscription can't be right. So uh, we conscripted. And why would we need to conscript if people hadn't lost heart and Mm didn't think it was worth it and begin to think the war is pointless. Where's it going? A million, uh, whatever it was, um, 400,000, 300,000 casualties by the end of 1916 or something like it. For no appreciable gain on the map. Here, here's a map.
0: There were some we big battles in 1915, right? Battle loose? Yeah, loose, uh, right, yeah. yeah Not I, just for the British, but in the whole Western no, Front. Of course. Some big, Absolutely. big battles yes. in 1915. So by 1916, people would have... The average People, person would have said, yeah. This is a meat grinder. This is an absolute, exactly. unprecedented meat grinder. And A war grinder. of attrition,
1: again, which is going on in the Ukraine now, today, a war of attrition. But if you think what a war of attrition actually is, the last man standing. So the job is not to gain territory, not to do it's this. Terrifying, life, it's isn't to it? kill, yeah.
0: terrifying.
1: It's to kill more Germans than they kill us. And the last man standing, if the last man standing is Tommy Atkins, we've won. What kind of logic is this? Mm, madness.
0: What mm, kind madness. of criminal
1: lunacy is this? Mm. Incidentally, I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> I'm an right. ex-soldier. Right. No, I'm not a pacifist. But, but that's lunacy, right? The strategy yeah, of that is... But I, you know, The job of a, 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 of a soldier, a British soldier, is defend our island. Or occasionally, something which has the Union Jack over it has been invaded by a bunch of bastards. Falklands <laughs> is a case in point. Mm. But generally speaking, our Navy, our Army in Naples now, with no empire, is to, is to defend us here. And yet we're sending the Royal Navy to the Eastern Mediterranean. when it should be in the Channel. We are already being invaded. The Royal Navy is not mobilized. It's off in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so our invasion at Dover goes on and goes on. Where's the rationale behind all this? Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely a great question. Again, it's a bit off of you to
0: have noticed all these things, Godfrey. I think it's uh, not quite. We would only need one or two large Royal Navy vessels in the Channel. To, uh, uh, it's the Dover mind, Patrol.
1: It's mind boggling to Admiral me. Admiral Bacon uh, uh, ran. We kept a very modern, uh, you know, the, the, don't forget the Germans had e-boats, they had submarines, all these things in both wars, uh, and they couldn't land. They mm. couldn't land. And they didn't get command. Okay, war in the air. Fair enough. But the fact that we, we, you know, it's like that. Uh, there's a cartoon, isn't it, with Hitler and his high command, and, and you know, just after they lost the Battle of Britain, and they were demolishing the invasion barges, uh, mm. and there's a picture uh, of uh, little paddle boats, you know, mm. p- paddling across in little rubber boats, and he goes, "Why didn't we think of that?"
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Uh why when the, the when the, the the small boat invasion i'm talking about today um sort of kicked off just as an aside before we go back to yeah. the early 20th century uh why there wasn't one or two ro- large royal navy vessels stationed in the channel to prevent it uh, almost immediately as mind-blowing uh, it's well because it's deliberate isn't it it's very sure, deliberate. It's deliberate which is um, because the, the really australians
1: just put in the chartered chartered tugs Uh, and took everybody back to the indonesian archipelago that's what should have happened but of course we know that it's deliberate Uh, these people are being brought in quite deliberately to destabilize and demoralize the country Mm. so that they can have their globalization program another rabbit Mm. hole yeah yeah they don't we don't even need a
0: a cruiser or an aircraft carrier or anything just a few chartered a few tugs
1: yeah a few tugs will do the job and it's Um, a job for the royal marines in the main yeah
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah. uh, someone i spoke to the other day just very quickly. So, um, there's, there's, some, there's a squadron of the SBS that do, uh, already are trained for exactly that sort of thing, yeah. to deal with small, small dinghy type level stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's already, we've got guys that can do exactly yeah, what that. they do. Um, I want to take you back, I want to while I've got you, to pick your brain about something that I've always, I fear that I've blown this up in my own mind, to the point where I've put too much emphasis on it and I I wonder what you think about it. The the Germans, or the German high command, when they saw, this is a very specific moment in time here, when they saw that the Russians had gone full-blown mobilization. Now, whether that was to to defend themselves against um, uh, the Germans themselves or whether it was for the Austro-Hungarian, Serbian theater, but whatever happened, once the German high command saw the Russians had started to fully mobilize, their decision making, a a, a switch in their mind, flipped where they said, we've got no choice now, but to pull the the trigger on the Schlieffen plan to do everything, to just do the whole thing, to go crazy sort of thing, to, to attack on both fronts and just pull all the levers of war once they saw the Russians had done that and for me in my mind I feel like there, there was really no way back I mean the die had already been cast by that point surely but certainly at that moment you know on that day really when the German high command make, start making those decisions there's no way back now the question of the Britain getting involved is a separate to that but while I've got you here I'd just love to know what you think about that have, have I distorted this in my mind, is that it, or do you think that's actually accurate? Do you think that's how it was? No, I is, think, uh, I think you're it...
1: quite right. I think that once that had been triggered, uh, and I think all wars are similar, uh, that, that was a sort of huge mobilisation situation. Uh, but wars, it's like a long walk, isn't it? It starts with a single step. Like, he does that. You do that. Uh, and, yeah, when you have your major battle plan, is to knock France out in three weeks with a plan like the Schlieffen plan so that you can reinforce the Eastern Front. Uh, and you'd already lost three days. I think I'm right in saying that the Germans had lost three days behind the Russians. Um, and there's this uh, controversy whether when, uh, you know, uh, Edward Gray had gone fishing and they couldn't get the British ambassador and all this was going on, they couldn't get them, it was to give. Um, France uh, an opportunity to steal a march of three days on the mobilisation. Uh, I don't know whether there's any truth in that. It's, it's it's a hypothesis of somebody else's and it's worthy of thought. Um, but that so that trigger you're absolutely right. And my idea then would have been when that trigger happened and if somebody should have known what they were doing. Gone. It's triggered now. There's going to be war. There's no here's where. We play the honest broker. This is where we go immediately to Berlin or insist on uh, seeing Bethwyd the, the, the uh, and, and, and saying to him, the look, we are now in a situation we're going to, we will come in, public opinion might push us in. Uh, and this is the deal to keep us out. We don't want to go to war. You don't want us in the war. Uh, and, and I think that was a time. because Communications weren't so good then.
0: Communications. It was done by
1: Telegram uh, and Mm. Dispatch Rider and all that kind of thing. It wasn't Mm. really very good. Mm. Uh, But of course, you do have. uh, This is a, a view of mine. This is a view of mine. If you have people, if you have a big army, it doesn't matter which army it is, if you spent billions and billions on a big army and guns and rifles and training and millions of men. For any length of time, you're going to want to use it. Mm. It's psychologically... This is the problem, of course, the Americans have Mm. today. Absolutely. They have a trillion dollar a year military. Yeah. It has to go somewhere. They're obliged to use it almost. They're obliged to use it. So it doesn't matter really where it goes, Mm. as long as it goes somewhere. Um, It's ridiculous, but that's how it is. And I think it's a lot of it is psychological. I'll give you an example of this. When I, I used to box a bit years and years ago. And to keep fit, uh, I went back to just going back to a little bit of working out on on the bag, as it were, just to keep fit. Um, And it was roundabout lockdown and mask wearing. And I'm an old geezer now, but I'm still reasonably fit. And, um, you know, every now and again, you get one of these buggers with, you know, with their bloody great face mask on. Where's your mask? Which, incidentally, I never wore. Um, <clears throat> and in a sometimes very aggressive way. <clears throat> now, the normal way, I would just take notice and move on and not get involved. But I've been working out on the bag for a few months, and I was just thinking, well, you know, it's as easy to punch this guy. <laughs> no. it's, too, it's too easy for me to punch him. And I feel like punching him because he's an idiot. He's a credit. So I'm going to punch him. So I stopped working out on the bag because your first resort should not be to punch somebody. Your first resort would be to not punch somebody mm. in some way. And I think when you have these big military things, and the senior command in the German army in particular, uh, is that they were very Prussian. It's a Prussian thing. It's militaristic. It's, it was a militaristic society, Prussia. Mm. Okay, Saxony isn't, Bavaria isn't, and the Rhineland isn't. But it was read, led by the Prussians, which are militaristic. Mm. We have a problem in America now, which is a militaristic society. You know, with their special deals for vets uh, and all this kind of thing that they do, and they do two hundred thousand uh, in Korea alone. You know, with their missiles and their bits and pieces, you can't have all that military hardware, a military aggression, without it bubbling over. And of course, I think a lot of that in uh, in nineteen fourteen. You made the point quite rightly. That was building for 14 years before. That's building since 1900. That was bubbling away. And it was triggered. And it was triggered. And the war was triggered. And the thing that frightens me today is, if if you're looking at history, we're seeing it in the Eastern Mediterranean now. You send an aircraft carrier group. And then you send this. And then you send that. Mm -hmm. And then the Russians feel obliged to, under bricks, maybe to support... Uh, Iran. And so and all the things go on and it becomes so complicated. It's unbelievable. But all you need to do, and, 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 and from a military naval perspective, the modern hardware that Hezbollah has and the Russians have and the Iranians, they could sink that aircraft carrier in the morning if they wanted to. They could sink it in the morning if they wanted to. And that, where does it leave us? suddenly 2,000 men have gone to the bottom in an echo, What is the retaliation? What's your next step? Mm. What's your Mm. next step on that? Where does it go? Uh, And so it's already escalating, as we see, and it escalated in 1914. Mm. Um, And there's nobody there to say, whoa, stop this. Let's just take a pace back. There was nobody there of character. The people with the interesting politically the people with the clout who could have done it was Lloyd George, who didn't. Lloyd George at that time in 1914 was a very powerful politician in the Liberal Cabinet, very powerful. And he could have easily given a speech, nobody better than, than Edward Gray, if he'd wanted to, to say, no war, we're not going to war. What we're going to do is we're going to control the Channel, we're going to control the North Sea. We are going to quadruple the size of the territorial army. We are preparing ourselves but we are not going to war um, today, or even this year. <clears throat> he would have carried the day. Lloyd George could have carried the day, but behind him, he, he bottled it. He stood down, and he didn't get himself involved. You've got bellicose Winston Churchill, who always wants to war with somebody. He can't help himself. Uh, and then you've got the imperious behind what we would call neocons today, under and under the guise of people like Alfred Milner and and so as well and intriguers behind the scene like Henry Wilson you're right it's so complicated I think there's I don't know how many million words have been written about the outbreak of the Great War I mean there's millions Mm. and millions and millions billions of words and everybody's got a different view Mm. but I don't I don't go down that view particularly because I think it's futile in many ways Mm. because it's only subjective but I think an objective view of mine is how we could have stayed out to the benefit of everybody concerned. It's interesting you mentioned quite a few people in the, in the Liberal cabinet
0: at the time. Um, I wonder how much... I mean, the blame game in hindsight is quite, as you say, pretty much pointless. However, we're here. I have I've always found it interesting, or odd, shall we say, that the Prime Minister, Asquith, um, Herbert Asquith he was, a, well not speaking, uh, was the Earl of Oxford I think wasn't he um, he seems to escape from the, the judgment of history the eye of Sauron looking back over time throwing judgment and blame all over the place he, he doesn't seem to get very much I mean um, Grey is probably well when you read a book or something about it um, Edward Grey comes up more than Asquith it seems Churchill comes up it seems, more than Asquith. You went to Lord George there, who famously goes on to be Prime Minister. Um, but I wonder why, or if you've got any thoughts or things, why is it that Asquith doesn't really come in for any real... Uh, well, not much, anyway. It's, it's, it's almost as though history likes to think everything was out of his hands. He didn't really have anything to do with it, almost. But he'd been Prime Minister since, what, 08, I think, or something? Oh yeah. I mean, what, what what are your feelings about Asquith? Most people don't even really mention him,
1: it seems. You'd make an extremely good point and valid point. I've got I, I've only got um, a couple of ideas on that. Firstly, in those days the Foreign Secretary was a very much more important man than he is to now. He's Absolutely, a placement. Yeah, now now right. Foreign Secretary then with no communication. So that was the numero Uno was the Foreign Secretary. So, he could actually set foreign <coughs> policy himself. <clears throat> oh yes. We we don't do it like that anymore, do we? (laughs) No, because of communications, you don't need the Foreign Secretary. The PM sets foreign policy. You don't even know Uh, who he is. Well, well, yeah, yeah. uh, Okay. uh, What we do know, he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we know that. The other thing is, Prime Ministers aren't always in governments the major force. And I don't think Asquith was a really serious political force. Prime Minister, though he was, Oh. So you can go back and find in it's history, British it? history, prime ministers who weren't really a political force, uh, as, as Lloyd George was, and proved that because he was the next prime minister so and with, with a following and a very powerful oratory, for example, in those days when oratory in the House of Lords mattered. The last orator in the House of Lords went, um, was Wedgwood Ben. He was the last man who could stand up and speak without notes. They used to say in the House of Commons, You're reading, reading, he's reading. <laughs> They'll stand up and read. Mm. But Douglas Murray's the same. I, like when I was with Douglas Murray uh, at the Oxford Union, uh, we, we shared the same side. Uh, I think I was proposing, he was proposing the motion. I would say it doesn't matter what it was anyway. Full House, Oxford Union. He can't speak without notes. <laughs> you can't speak to the <laughs> Oxford Union with your face like that. He might be able to write, but he can't speak. I see MPs reading off their phone in Parliament. I know. <laughs> what happened? It's when poor a... form, really, isn't it? I walked into the centre of the bloody thing Oxford Oxford, and I looked up into the gallery and gave them 15 minutes of top stuff. Which I thought was top stuff. They probably thought it was rubbish, but I gave them top stuff. If you can't do that, you're mm. in the wrong game. Yeah. If you can't speak to a room full of people without notes, you're in the wrong game. But now they do because they're placement, aren't they? If you're not speaking from the heart and you know what you're talking about, it shouldn't
0: be much of an ask to do 10, 15 minutes. No, it's easy. Right. I mean, it's Why easy. would you? Yeah. if it's your thing, it's it. your yeah. bag oh, yeah. and
1: you're speaking on your subject. <laughs> I mean, I did this hypothesis uh, to the London School of Economics and the East India Club History Society just a little while ago in point of fact. I don't need any notes. <laughs> Well, I can't remember why I ran upstairs sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, if you've had a lifetime of being interested and in reading around the topic, exactly, again, ten or fifteen minutes is not shouldn't oh, be no, too much of an really. ask. No, you could should be able to do a lot more than that. Um, exactly. But um, I just wonder why. Going back to the Great War quickly, um, the idea that Britain could have then remained—if uh, just imagine. Let's imagine they went with y- your idea of that. We'll we'll. Um, We'll have quite a hard line on the naval side of things. It had but, to be hard, but, yeah. But we'll let the French defend themselves.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, do you, is, would it not be fair, again, I'm just playing devil's advocate because I actually largely agree with you. I think that would be bloody brilliant from our point of view. Would have changed all of history, of course. But then would it not be a worry that whether, whether the Germans actually got to Paris and defeated the French... 1940 style or uh, uh, 1870 style, um, it would have left Germany being the sort of undeniably the most dominant power in Europe. And then are we not looking at once again, somewhere down the road, it becoming some kind of existential threat to us? Here's one thing before I let you answer. <laughs> one thing I've always thought, 400 of years, going back to the 17th century even certainly the 18th century the seven years war the war of the spanish succession all these, all these sorts of things um where we'd want a balancing act to prevent one faction one power from becoming overly overly powerful um that it seems to me there's been or you could even argue for a thousand years or more some sort of endless conflict between france and germany and that after france uh, sorry after germany was unified, there was always going to be some sort of crazy, bloody showdown, total war style, everything on the table, no-holds-barred showdown between France and Germany. And that to stay out of it would be like staying out of the Napoleonic Wars. You would just be kicking the, the trouble down the road a bit. Now, again, just to reiterate, I'm playing devil's advocate here. But is that, you know, is that not true? W- wouldn't, would it, we would have to have confronted Germany at some later stage anyway? No, they would have forced us to at some point.
1: Well, you make a very, very valid point. What I would say was that if you see from a geopolitical strategy, leave, leaving just the military side, the, if you look from a geopolitical industrial side, for example, Germany was pushing ahead quite early in the century on social reform and social welfare as well. In fact, That's it true. was Lloyd yeah, George yeah. who followed Bismarck in his yeah. ideas of social, <clears throat> social stability and, and pensions and healthcare. Bismarck didn't want to give the buggers a vote. They <laughs> wouldn't want to go that far. Uh, but yeah, the social the social reform and, on which Lloyd George Uh, plus the tremendous growth in industrial power, which brings wealth. Generally speaking, wealth is destroyed by war. It would have been expensive. Germany couldn't have stayed with an occupational force. Uh, Sooner or later, they'd have to withdraw. What would have happened on the Eastern Front? Uh, There was nothing in... There would be nothing really... To persuade Germany that they wanted another war later, after the expense and the deaths already by 1915 of, of what happened. Plus, there's another piece of, there's another chess piece mm. on the board, and that's the United States of America growing exponentially mm. uh, in strength, industrial strength, not military strength, industrial strength, financial strength, at a time when we were still pretty much joined at the hip. Uh, There's no way, uh, in my view, that had that developed and I was thinking, let's say ten years, let's say ten years, let's pick a figure, ten years, if Germany had suddenly started. What would they they have been after? What acquisition would they have been after from the British that the British had, that they wanted? Um, I can't see what they would have wanted in, worthy of going to war for and spending all that money and expenditure of life, plus with our big brother, uh, if it were, well, not a big brother, then we were the big brother, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, equal, twin brother, if you like, mm-hmm. the United States. Um, I don't think there would be any interest in war because there was no result. There wasn't any real result when you think about it in, in, in the first war. I don't think the Germans wanted to crush France. They had their moment of glory in the Franco-Prussian War, which was designed largely to bind the German Republic to uh, the uh, United Germany. That was, that was the reason for the war, to bind Saxony and right, Bavaria right. and the Rhineland yeah, States. Yeah. It wasn't really to actually beat the French up for no particular reason. There was no particular reason really for that. Don't forget that uh, it was Blücher that won the Battle of Leipzig. It was all over. The French were beaten. The Napoleonic French were beaten. Uh, and the that had been a Franco-Prussian war been one before that. Now there's another one. I, I get a feeling that everybody would be, for God's sake, you know, by that stage, let's we did have a go with modern ordnance in the field, a big number of armies and all the rest of it. We saw that we had a taste of that in 1914 and halfway through 1915. We don't want to go there. And Britain, of course, hasn't lost any money. We're still the richest people on the planet. Uh, and we would have had just more money and we'd have mobilized the, uh, the uh, territorial army, would have made a much bigger thing of the citizen army, uh, the right. territorial army, which fought so well in the Second War. Uh, and so we would have had a fairly realistic manpower army on our shores. And of course, people talk about um, its a bit of grasshoppering about here People talk about the Americans and Taiwan and the Chinese invading Taiwan. I mean, really, as a military man, a military strategist, that is just stupid. That's just bullshit. That's 100 miles from the Chinese mainland to Taiwan. You can't you cannot have a modern warfare over trying to land men 100 miles over open sea uh, with the modern equipment that runs today. Air power, satellite powers. You simply can't do it. It's not physically possible. so again, it's all this going on. It's all militarism. Who's the next? Who's the next enemy? Oh, China. Oh, we failed in the Ukraine. We failed in Afghanistan. We failed in Libya. We failed in the Hall of Africa. We failed in Iraq. Oh, let's have a pop at China. I've been to Washington with these people. You have no concept of how stupid they are. I've been to the Brookings Institute at the EIS. All these the people belly of the beast. I've been in the belly of the beast on many <laughs> occasions. They've got Brooks Brothers shirts. They've, they're looking very smart, very dapper, neat haircuts. They're some of the thickest people that I've ever met in my entire mm. life. I mean, there's more brain power down at the wheat sheaf in my local town. <laughs> Artisans, you know, brickies, chippies, and all the rest of it. They've got so much more common sense and brain power than the Muppets you meet in Washington.
0: I am given to understand that Formosa, uh, um, that Taiwan is would be a very, very, very difficult battlefield for everyone concerned. Yeah. Uh, one thing just to say there about where I mentioned <coughs> playing devil's advocate, that it might have been worth getting involved in 1914 because uh, it would just kick, would otherwise be kicking the, uh, the can down the road and that the Germans might essentially force us to confront them at some point anyway. And you said, well, they wouldn't have anything to gain from that. There is the sticky example of World War II where they were pre- see, apparently seemingly prepared to go to have a world war over the Sudetenland, didn't seem to care that America would, well, not, not care, but they didn't, it didn't stop them that America got involved. A crazy as that is, well, yes, you know, but, there is okay, that example. Well, it, I would argue um, that certainly,
1: <laughs> I mean, the Americans didn't involve themselves for two years, uh, so they weren't yeah, really interested. Thanks for nothing, by the way, guys. And if you read, have you read Professor Norman Stone's? Book. No, no. I, I would commend that to you, uh, uh, it's, You 1939-45. Know, it's very controversial. Uh, well, they just
0: watched the Battle of Britain take place to uh,
1: see what... Well, uh, <laughs> it, it's quite interesting, Norman Stone's uh, view. He's not alone in this. I've met some other authors who take a very similar view. If you read very carefully uh, what was going on in 1913 and 1940, uh, and and books that I have read where, again, you know, the, the Germans look east. The Third Reich couldn't understand why we involved ourselves in another war. Hmm. They couldn't, yeah. un- they genuinely couldn't yeah. <laughs> understand. They couldn't understand the first time because they would sit down and go, what is, ge- what is, what is Britain, yeah. the British Empire going to get out yeah. of a war with us when we're looking east? We want to expand. Incidentally. Mm-hmm. It isn't generally known. The negotiations that were going on with Poland, everybody thinks about the Sudetenland, mm-hmm. but if you think about um, the corridor uh, to uh, the Baltic, Danzig, and, and what, Danzig, they, what yeah. the, the Germans wanted was a corridor. And the war again in Poland, the war against the invasion of Poland didn't come out of fresh air. We are led to believe that. And I think Mm -hmm. the name of the Polish foreign minister was Kosh or Kosh or Kosh. And I speak as somebody married into a Polish family, so I'm not anti Pole or anything like that, or by any means. Um, But there was a negotiation there. There could have been a negotiation. Now, nobody's suggesting that Hitler wasn't a ghastly monster, but he had no ambition on the British Empire. And genuinely, even. Even post-Dunkirk was making overtures. And why? Mm -hmm. Why are you in this? Mm -hmm. My target is the Soviet Union. That's my beef. And if if I don't invade them, they're going to invade me. You know, they're the bad guys on the block. You know, I don't have a problem with you. Mm -hmm. But Churchill was not going to have anything other than war. Mm. In the same way mm. he was in 1914. Mm. That opens a whole can of worms on Churchill, of mm. course. Yeah. So I'm not going down.
0: Well, if we could have you back sometime, I'd love to have a couple of hours with you yeah. just talking about old Winnie. <laughs> um, there's plenty there. Um, and I'm a bit of a revisionist on that. I don't necessarily uh, buy all the sort of court historians and sort of lionizing him. I think we might be on the same page there. Yeah. Um, I'm but- a
1: fairly new to the Churchill revisionism. Oh, really? But with um, my father about Battle of Britain, he wasn't Battle of Britain. He was a fighter pilot in the war. But he just missed the Battle of Britain. But right. So I was brought up. Um, well, yeah, yeah. It, well, it's in my DNA. And well, it's only in later life I'm going, just just a minute. Well, it's not me a simple thing. It's yeah. only,
0: I mean, I'm in my early 40s. And for the first half of my life, absolutely bought into mm. the the Churchill myth, shall we say. But anyway, that's another, for another time, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yes, this idea that um, um, the the Germans, both in... The first and the second war were looking east. Of course, they were. I'm not denying that. Wouldn't dream of denying that for a moment. Um, uh, and the, uh, they wanted that. That the, they saw in the first war, uh, uh, the the breadbasket of you know what becomes uh, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, and and Poland, and the western portion of of Russia. That um, they coveted that. Um, and in the second war. Similar, but you know, there's the there's more politics involved with Bolshevism and all sorts of other things. Nonetheless, you know, it's absolutely true to say that 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 that, that well, the National Socialists and Hitler uh, seem to have been couldn't quite believe that we were insisting on getting involved in the Second War. I think a lot of that, the politics once Churchill had become Prime Minister, anyway, um, a lot of it you have to lay at the foot of of, of, of Sir Winston himself. In the first war, you know, we're dealing with a whole different set of people, really. Like we say, we've got have got Asquith and Great, well, Churchill at the at the um, um <coughs> as, uh, uh, at the Admiralty, but he couldn't Churchill in the first war in nineteen fourteen. He didn't control government, right? He 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 his his voice was he was already a statesman, right? He was already a powerful figure in cabinet and all that sort of thing. You you know, you couldn't just Discard anything he said, but he couldn't set foreign policy, could he, in 1914?
1: No, you're quite right. Of course, he couldn't. Uh, but you have these other figures. You know, you have. Um, Why do I... you think Edward Gray, sorry, was so mm. set on war then? Why
0: did he make that speech uh, well, saying, we've got to do this? Why? Well, I mean, uh, I it's think difficult that's question, something that it? we're it's never going to yeah, know. Yeah, it's a
1: difficult question, right? Because I. I would argue, I'd be interested in your view on this, I would argue that Edward Grey was just hopelessly out of his depth. (laughs) That would be my... I've read his autobiography. I've read biographies of him to see if I can unlock Mm. this secret. And I have failed dismally. I think he was just an Edwardian gentleman Mm. out of his depth. And I think behind the scenes... Uh, when you've got Alfred Milner, Lord Esher, the Rothschilds, and really, if you like, a sort of gobby Churchill, uh, and a neutralised Lloyd George, who had a high lifestyle, dissolute, dodgy dude. uh, uh, Churchill, we don't know about Churchill's background, but somebody was pulling his strings, I think, always financially, certainly. Mm. Have you got this just like today? It doesn't matter whether Mm. it's Bill Gates or the Rothschilds or George Soros. We are dealing with huge amounts of money, Mm, money moneyed interests, and you can buy Mm. you can buy most people. You can buy most people uh, with that kind of wealth. I mean, why did Boris Johnson? Two things with Boris. Just talk about Boris for a moment. Who's obviously a spiv and a crook. But (laughs) leaving that aside.
0: People don't say spiv enough anymore, I don't
1: think. <laughs> <laughs> well, i got old Boris. The last words he said, and you can get this from your Hansard, the last thing he said as a speech <clears throat> to the chamber was, before I go, I'll say one thing, uh, stay close to America. Stay close to America. Uh, I reckon that was a million-dollar sentence. Mm. That was a mm. million-dollar sentence. With a CIA be with an unaudited no. budget mm. of billions of dollars. And then he flew to Kiev to stop the peace process, which was almost finishing. It was almost done. It was almost signed off. And he stopped it um, with an industrial military complex, neocons Mm. with limitless checkbooks. And he's just bought a £4 million house. Okay, which is peanuts these days, I suppose. But, Mm. you know, he's such obviously a crook. And yeah, he bought and paid for. Yeah, mm. bought and paid for. And. The criminal, you know, in my yeah, estimation. Yeah, without doubt, in my view. In my, I don't, and, and with no investigative journalists left, there are no investigative journalists, that they've gone. They went some years ago, I think now. <clears throat> State broadcasting, the BBC. Uh, Laura Cheeseburger, or whatever her <laughs> name is, the political correspondent, on 300 grand a year oh, come on, She's going to rock the boat on 300 grand a year by asking awkward questions. The Daily Telegraph, bought mm. and paid for by whomsoever now runs it or is going to run it in the future. Um, and then, of course, you've got this, I mean, Lord Rothschild could buy the Daily Telegraph by just, you know, he probably just by the cash he carries in his pocket. Mm. You know. mm. These people, the wealth of these people. And if you add that to a total and utter lack of moral compass, <laughs> which of course has been there for 150 years. Because if you are a sociopath, and I personally believe having been in politics for 10 years, you cannot climb the greasy pole unless you are a sociopath. Because it's not the enemy, it's not the opposition you have to deal with, it's your colleagues to get up the greasy pole you have to stab in the back. That's how you get the top of the greasy pole. And then you end up with people who don't want to be there with a conviction. Uh, mm. Cameron didn't want to be prime minister to do anything. He wanted to be prime minister. Theresa May is the same. She would wanted to mm. be prime minister. Mm. Boris wanted to be prime minister. And he wanted it since he was at uh, Oxford, but mm. not to do anything. <laughs> if I was prime minister, I want to do stuff. Mm. I'd want mm-hmm. to get rid of regulations. I want to halve mm. tax. Uh, you know, I'd want to do all sorts of things as, as soon as I got in. These guys don't... They sound sort of four square for nothing in particular. Mm, visionless. Totally. You have a vision for Britain. Yeah, yeah which it I think we're like... we taking back, go back to Asquith. You know, I think you'll find that Asquith is an extremely highly paid lawyer. Uh, you know, i.e. a professional spiv. <laughs> right. Isn't As was Obama. <laughs> yeah. A Chicago lawyer. Mm. And another rabbit hole, Lincoln. <laughs> there's another one to go down. That's another rabbit hole for another day.
0: If someone like Boris, let's say, cares more about his pocket than his principles. Um, it's the only way to really justify or explain the lockdowns and that trip, that specific trip to Kiev to uh, scupper the peace deals. Why on earth? It doesn't make any sense other than that he was, he was personally making something out of it. Money, I would have thought.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, why, or, would, or, or why would you do that? down the line that? for something. Who knows what, but... It's... Why would you get on a plane to stop a peace deal, which on the ink was still wet to save all those young and Russian lives uh, and, 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 and Ukrainian lives, hundreds of thousands of young men. And all he needed to do was say, this is a good deal. Let's do this. Well, an absolutely disgusting thing to have done. I know. It's appalling. <laughs> and he, now he's suddenly got a slot on GB News. I couldn't share
0: a room with the man. I don't think no. I could. I don't think I could. Um, I mean, it really is quite <laughs> appalling. Dreadful. Um, uh, unfortunately, we've got to start drawing it to a close. Um, but there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you about World War I. And we've touched on loads of other things as well. It would, it would be really great to get you back. Maybe we can talk about Churchill or something. There's a, a number of things I'd love to talk to you about. Um, but I suppose with the World War I and your thesis about how it would have been mm. better I, you know, even though I've played devil's advocate, advocate here a few times, I I just I just completely agree with you. It would have been it's one of the the biggest catastrophes that has ever happened to England or Britain. Um, getting involved in that war and not just the blood, and not just sort of the although that is the most important thing really, or at least in my mind. You know, the human misery that it caused, but also in terms of sort of the rending apart of society in some ways, the economic cost oh, the uh,
1: social fabric uh, was the most important thing it destroyed. Uh, uh, it de- it destroyed, it destroyed the country. And here's a, here's a quote that might make you weep. Uh, and that is, cross source on this subject with Max Hastings. I think it was Max Hastings. Um, Very was, illustrious historian. Yeah, like yeah that I'm that going, ba- I'm going back. You know, broadly on this, uh, if it wasn't Max, I'm sorry, I thought it was you, but maybe it was somebody else. And but somebody equally well known in the historical field said, "Oh well, if we hadn't involved ourselves in the Great War, post-war Europe would have been significantly worse." Now you tell me how you work that one out. Post-war Europe in 1920s and 30s be worse than it was. It doesn't seem to make any logical I mean, sense to me there would have been no there would have we had we had civil war in spain we had fascism in portugal we had the third reich fascism in italy and stalin somebody tell me how it could have been
0: worse <laughs> than that plus i'm not one of these people that goes in for highlighting any of the crimes and things of of the of the british but we were blockading germany to the point of starvation right up to the end of world war one I. Mm. I mean take that out of the equation alone surely europe was in a slightly better would have been in a slightly better situation just that that one tiny
1: point well um but we we, right. d- we, uh, we just i can't yeah, that doesn't make that, any sense right? i just yeah. i just can't believe that um, um Uh, Even if the French had lost, you see, Mm. even if Mm. they said, oh, well, the British expedition, I could argue with another military historian who might say, no, look, I think you're wrong. They wouldn't have stopped the French on the Marne. Or if it hadn't been the retreat from Mons, they would have captured. We could have that argument all day, which is Mm. totally subjective and doesn't take us anywhere. But we could do that and Mm. we'd probably both enjoy it, uh, you know, everything. But what it wouldn't have changed, what it wouldn't have changed uh, is the long term strategic picture. because the ripping up of the whole fabric of Europe, uh, the monarchies, uh, the, the, the the old Russia, uh, all of this would have changed anyway. I'm mm. not. I don't believe that that was all worth saving. But I think you would have had, you would have your change in Russia, which was due for change anyway. Uh, that would have given possibly earlier somebody like Kerensky uh, in 1970 the, the, the opportunity to bring. Russia to some form of social democracy and, you know, it would have given it a chance instead of Lenin. We might not Stalin. have got uh, Marxist Leninists. exact like Bolsheviks. How, yeah. How could my hypothesis be any worse? Mm,
0: really? mm. I also sometimes think yeah. that how terrible would it have been had the Imperial German armies of 1914 just done in 1871, just taken Paris, effectively beaten France. Yeah. As you said, and I completely agree with this, 110%, they were never going to occupy France indefinitely. Not possible. Right, not possible. Right. Uh, France as an entity was not going to disappear. No. They, They weren't going to genocide every Frenchman. No. So how terrible would it have been if we just sort of let that happen?
1: It wouldn't have done any harm. And as my father said, it's a good point to end on this one, I think. Ooh. My father said, uh, I know that the French have been our natural enemy for a thousand years and still are, uh, notwithstanding all my French friends that I have, um, and still are. And my father told me when I was quite a young lad, I wouldn't be more than about 4, 50, 14 or 15, taking interest in history. And he said, they will forgive the Germans for invading them. They will never forgive us for rescuing them. Mm. Very interesting,
0: <laughs> very interesting adage. Yeah, the animosity between us. No, that is an excellent place to, 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 <laughs> yeah. to end it. Um, um, okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. A Pleasure. brilliant Most conversation. Enjoyable. Most enjoyable. And um, at, at, at the considerable risk of sounding like a broken record, I'd love to have you back. Yeah, love to come back too. And um, yeah, so, yeah, great p- fun. Picking the mind of people, someone yeah. that, that knows their stuff is always a joy to me. So once again, thank you very much. You're very welcome.
1: Thank you. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at LotusEaters.com.